Hey, it's me. You're tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour, and I'm very pleased to be presenting our special guest, Bruce Coburn, is a singer, songwriter, recording artist. He's joining us here for episode number 12. He's quite a prolific songwriter, written over 300 songs. They've been recorded by everyone from The Bare Naked Ladies, Jimmy Buffett, Annie DeFranco, Katie Lang, the late Dan Fogelberg, the Jerry Garcia Band. I could keep going. He's a very interesting songwriter. The first song that I heard of his that really affected me was Pacing the Cage. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the interview that almost was. It was a few years back that I had an interview scheduled with Bruce Coburn, an artist I greatly admire, and my car broke down. I could not get to the studio, and now I have a shot at redemption. So thank you so much, Bruce Coburn, for joining us. I'm glad I'm glad we finally got it together. <laughs> well, Thanks for having me. <laughs> my pleasure. You have recently released your 33rd album, and it's called Bone on Bone. I've been enjoying it very much. What has always been the purpose of the art that you create? Well, that's an interesting and potentially very deep question that might end up with a very long answer, but um, maybe not. Let's see. I do it. I mean, if I try to describe why I do it, it's going to come out on different levels. So on on the most basic level, it's a visceral urge. It's kind of biological. It's like I want to write songs. And I, I, when I, if I go too long without writing a song, I start to feel like something's going wrong. Like the, the, the system isn't, my own system isn't working right. And there's this, this compulsion to kind of try to get something. So that's on one level. And, uh, but of course, when people hear the songs, it, that's not what they hear. So there's obviously the point. I mean, you're sharing feelings and experiences with people when you write a song. And, or at least I do when I'm writing a song, I guess there's different ways you can approach it. So uh, yeah, I, I've got the colossal presumption to think that what I have to say might matter to somebody else. And I think most artists share that, maybe all of us do. And in doing, in doing that sharing, you want to share something worthwhile and you want to share something that might, I feel this way anyway, that, that might be useful to people. You also want to entertain them. So there's all of these things that come into play in the in the kind of at, at the beginning of the process and and, and throughout actually anyway that's there's not much point in writing a song that doesn't entertain people on some level I mean we're all entertained by different things some of us like really intense blood and guts and some of us like cuter things and, and whatever so it's a bit of a crapshoot but but I feel that if I have a strong enough feeling about something to trigger the creative process, then it's worth sharing with people. And, and it's, it's partly about letting them know that these feelings are out there. Maybe, maybe it helps them feel not so alone. Maybe it helps me feel not so alone by thinking that I'm sharing with someone. But it's also, and I suppose this is part of the same point, that, that there's a sense of community that happens around the, the listening around listening to music if you especially in live situations it, it's not as obvious in a you know at home but uh, a bunch of people gathered in a room 
to listen to music is essentially a community and that that's an increasingly endangered species in the in our modern world of online everything so i really value that highly has the reason that you write changed at all through the years i'm not sure because i didn't pay much attention to why i did it in the beginning i just mm-hmm. wanted to do it there's a I, I suppose you know we all have to some degree a desire to be heard this is who I am, to be recognized as a person. And for somebody who's engaged in an artistic pursuit, whatever medium it's in, that that desire to be noticed or to be heard and, and ideally to be understood carries over into the work. It's, it's probably what motivates us to, to do the work in the first place. So that's, that was always there, but I didn't really think about it very much. And it's just like, well, I like this. I like writing songs. I like playing the guitar. I was terrified of getting out in front of people and singing, but but I liked the back room stuff, and eventually I got over the fear enough to actually do it. So it it became what I do. And once it was kind of something I just imagined myself doing full time, then I didn't really think about it after that. But you know, over the years, of course, it, things come up. I mean, you're you're forced to deal with reactions that you get from people and that makes you think about what it, why you're doing what you do and, and how it works and all that. Reactions from distaste, some people hate it and and then other people like it but they appear to like it for reasons that I don't understand and then every now and then there's somebody that just has a story to tell. One of my, one of the examples of this that I've cited a few times is in the 70s I recorded a song called All the Diamonds in the World and a lot of people like that song, but sometime during the mid-80s, later, the latter half of the 80s, I guess, the, I was performing in Sweden, and this guy came backstage to say hello, who had a story of his own, which was that he had been on the verge of suicide, and he heard that song, and it changed his direction. It kept, basically, in his words, it kept him from committing suicide. To me, I mean, this is not why I write songs. I, I never imagined in a billion years that a song of mine would have that deep an effect on somebody, but there it was. So how do I deal with that? I mean, that was almost as that was almost harder to deal with in some ways than being rejected, because there seemed to be an awesome responsibility that went with that. If this, if a song can touch somebody that deeply, you better make sure you touch them in a good way, because you know the opposite could be true also. You could, if, if, if a song can save somebody, somebody from suicide, it might also potentially drive someone else to do something terrible. So, yeah, there's that kind of perspective only developed over time with, with these kinds of experiences. So after this guy said that to you, did that change in any way the way you felt about your responsibility as an artist? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it changed it. It, it, it certainly reconfirmed the sense that I've always had, I think, that, that that it's important to be truthful, that it's important to be real, that it's it's important to be positive where possible. And I say where possible because sometimes the truth is not positive and you still have to tell it. But, but you know, where you can, I think it's important. It's just like it is in every other human encounter. I mean, you're, if you're going to share your feelings with people, whether it's over a beer and a back, you know, in, in some bar or whether it's, it's on stage, there's an effect. And the cause and effect 
relationship is, is one that you have to pay attention to. So that, I think I always had the sense of that, but I, it became much clearer through experiences like the one I described. And it became, it, it acquired a weight that it perhaps didn't have before. We're speaking with singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. As we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, you have this new album, Bone on Bone. How would you compare it to your other albums? It's the most recent one, and I like it best. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's pretty much how I think about it. Uh, it. It's a little bluesier than some of my albums. It's, it's. Uh, I mean, or maybe rootsier is a better way to say it. It's not really a blues album, but it, there are, there's a bit more of that flavor in it than in some of my stuff. It's. I'm, I'm very happy to have it because been a while since I put out an album. It's been 10 years, really. So that it's nice to have an album again. I, in the meantime, there was a book, there was other stuff going on, but it wasn't like I was dormant. But it was, it felt like a distraction to be away from writing songs, performing, you know, all that. So it's nice to be kind of back on that track again. And the track from the album, Bone on Bone, it's an instrumental song. How did you come up with that? phrase bone on bone what does that mean well it's a phrase that as you get older you start to hear from doctors <laughs> because uh, what it means is that there's no cartilage left in your joints so and and there's uh, i've got a couple of spots in my body where that happens to be the case so it and it seemed like an amusingly ironic title to give a solo guitar piece that that actually is a product of the action of bone on bone to some extent so that's really that's what gave me the idea. But when having called the guitar piece that, it just seemed, it also seemed like a really good title for the album because it's a pithy phrase. I mean, even if you you may have other associations with with it, but it's just something about bone and bone together that that's that has this kind of strength, the kind of strength that you want in a title. So it seemed like a good choice. At the beginning of the documentary about you pacing the cage. There's the remark that Bruce Coburn doesn't take himself too seriously. Do you agree with that? Well, I agree with I, I agree with it as an ideal. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I, I'd like to be I'd like it to be true. I'm not sure it always is. Sometimes it is. I mean, I I, I think it's important to have a, a a kind of light relationship with your ego. <laughs> We can't get rid of it. It'll never go away, but I, but I think it's important not to attach too much importance to your own notions about things. I, I believe what I believe, and I, I, the things I think are, are true are things that I adhere to, and, uh, but I think, I think it, it would be inappropriate to try to inflict those on other people by any means other than saying, here's what I think, what do you think, <laughs> which is what the songs do. So... You know, I, I don't think that any of us has the right to tell other people how to live or how to think or uh, anything like that. And, and so once you're approaching things from that perspective, it's not very hard to to keep a light attitude toward your own ideas and feelings. With what you're saying, that it would be inappropriate to tell someone else how to think. In that case, what do you think the role of a songwriter or an artist is in this world 
Well, like I said, I think it's about sharing. I think I, 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 when I say tell other people how to think, I, I don't mean that you can't tell people things that you think and feel. But what I mean is that, it's, that when you tell them those things, that it's unreasonable to expect them to be immediately persuaded by them, or, or at all, for that matter. I mean, they might be... The best you can hope for is that people are going to receive what you have to say with an open mind and heart, and that... Uh, and some kind of some kind of genuine communication can take place, and if they see that your whatever you're saying to them has, has merit, then then there's you know, maybe then you've communicated something that matters about how how you think things should be, but you can't force that, and you can't it's it's, it's just unfair to expect people to to take what you say that seriously. I mean, people do it. Every artist has, every artist who has fans at all, has fans who do that, who take things terribly seriously and sometimes way too literally and sometimes they invest you and your work with more meaning than it really deserves. Or maybe that's not the right way to say it. They invest it with meaning that, that matters in their life. That, to me, I, I feel like I need to be cautious about that in a way. Not in terms of like choosing what to write, that. It's not about that, but just like just to be aware of the fact that sometimes people take these things too far. But that can go the other way too. I mean, people can hate you for reasons that really don't that aren't material to anything. In all that rhetoric, I've kind of lost track of your question, so you better ask it again. <laughs> I was just asking what you think the role of an artist is in this world. Well, yeah, okay. So, so, so sharing it really. I mean, to me, art is about the job of an artist is, you know, I'm kind of quoting myself here, but I, I think it's the best way I can say it, is to take what you can gather of the human experience as understood by you and distill it into something that you can hand on to somebody else. And so whether it's painting or a song or a symphony or, you know, a dance performance, whatever it might be, or a circus act, for that matter, you're, you're, the point is to put a couple of hearts together, and it only happens on an individual basis. I mean, you can have a general effect and become very famous and have hundreds of thousands of people pay attention to you, but but the actual communication happens one-on-one. Each of those hundred thousand people or hundreds of thousands of people has an individual relationship with with your work. So it's about that kind of that. That sharing, and the more visceral you can make sharing, the better it works. The more the more power it has, the more the more open it asks us all to be. And I think that's I think being open and receptive to feelings and to to truth, whatever that might be, is it's a pretty big deal. And for for me to be able to contribute to that feels like something very worthwhile. I'm going to read this quote about you. This singer-songwriter wrote, Bruce Coburn, how many ways can I say I love him? He is the mystic, the sage, the righteous truth-teller, the master of guitar, of voice, of love songs, political songs, songs of awe and wonder, the voice I have turned to over and over again. And the person who said that, or wrote that, was Mary Gauthier. And she appeared on this album, the song 40 Years in the Wilderness. I was hoping you could tell us about 
how you came to get the idea to have her sing on the album, and just about how you met her. I met her, I had met her once previous to her coming in to sing on the record. We were in a workshop together at a folk festival in Canada. I can't remember which city it was in. Uh, now it might have been might have been Edmonton. But I heard her being interviewed on the radio one day at length, and uh, I thought she sounded pretty interesting, and I liked her performance, and, and just I liked the genuineness that came through. Then we did this workshop together, and when it was time to kind of think of who we would might might want to come and be a guest on the record. Colin Linden and I were, were doing that kind of overdubs in Nashville after having done the basic tracks and so on in California. And we were at Colin's home, home studio in Nashville and, you know, we're thinking, well, who's around? Who can we get? And, and Colin and I, I, don't, I forget who said her name first, but we thought Mary Gilchey was would be perfect. And she was around and she was available and willing and she came in and I'm really happy that she's on the record. I think she's very good. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I was going to say I don't know. I, I started speculating about how people would characterize her for someone who didn't, who's not familiar with her. And uh, you could, I suppose, in a way, think of her as a, a female counterpart to John Prine. Huh. But it, it, that's the, and that has a certain, uh, you know, it's a little bit like that. But she's not. She writes a different kind of song than he does altogether. And and. Uh, and she's she's intense and deep, and her songs come from pretty soulful place. And and uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, I, I I'm very touched that, uh, that that quote I didn't I wasn't familiar with all that and uh, that you just read. So it's uh, I was touched before I found out who said it, <laughs> and I'm even more touched now. So I look forward to running into her again. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, on the note of other artists, there have been some great singer-songwriters who have interpreted your music, from Judy Collins, gosh, Dan Fogelberg, Tom Rush. There have been a lot of them. This is probably a hard and maybe a little bit (laughs) of a sticky question, but who has interpreted your song, and which interpretation of one of your songs has been the biggest honor for you? Well, that's an interesting variation on the question. I mean, uh, it, it, I sometimes get asked wh- which one I prefer, or which what's my favorite one, or something, which is very hard to come up with an answer for. But honored by is uh, is interesting because I mean, in a you know, uh, really, I'm I'm honored by everybody doing those songs. Like uh, it's not. I mean, I, I don't really hero worship people. I. I I, we're all just people, basically, and and we're all pretty much, in my view, on on the same plane. And so, you know, to sort of say, well, you know, I'm more honored that Judy Collins did a song than I am that Jerry Garcia did a song. Well, or vice versa, or whatever it might be, would be a bit strange. Uh, but but really, the idea that anybody wants to do the songs is an honor. And um, whether they're famous or not, I mean, you know, there's lots of artists that. Of, of vastly less notoriety than the ones you you mentioned that that have done my songs, and that matters just as much to me as the famous people. Uh, when you hear what somebody does with the songs, then you know there's sometimes there's pros and cons in that. Like you say, well, 
so-and-so did this song, they did a very sort of respectful, tasteful version of it, but it, but they didn't seem to bring much to it that, that's new, and then somebody else might bring something to it that's new, and it's sort of a little too new, <laughs> and, and I'm going, wait, wait a minute, they didn't change it, they changed it too much, but then you get, you have to step away from those kinds of reactions and think, well, you know, this, the, the, uh, this, this artist recorded this song because it touched them, and because they, or at least they liked it enough to think it was worthy of recording. I mean, you know, so, and that, that's an honor just in itself. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, it really is the same honor as is done by an audience, by the people who buy the records or people who come to the shows, but, but you don't get to hear their take on it. Whereas with, when somebody records a song, you do. Well, one person that I think it's pretty clear he loves your music would be Jimmy Buffett. I'm not absolutely certain of this, but I believe that there is no songwriter that he has covered more, with the exception of the late Jesse Winchester. Has he ever personally expressed to you what your songs mean to him? I've never met him, and uh, and I've never had any direct communication with him, so no. But uh, I'm very happy that he recorded the songs, and, and uh, you know, he's... It's been kind of amazing how many he's done. I, and I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll accept the statistic you offered as a as truth, uh, just because I don't know any different one way or the other. But it, it certainly, it certainly, uh, uh, you know, he recorded an unexpectedly large number. I mean, he's, he's done, I don't know, was it five, six, seven? I don't know how many songs on several different albums uh, of mine. And that's that's a lot for somebody. Uh, most of the people who have done my songs have done one. So. You know, it, it's pretty great. Which song of yours do you think he did the best job on? I'd have to go back and listen to them because I don't know really. I mean, uh, the versions he's done have been very what true to the song. So I, he's, and that would apply to all the ones he's done. Uh, a song that what comes to mind right now is a song called "Someone I Used to Love," which was a bit unexpected. I, I mean, that's sort of a maybe a bit of a sleeper song. It's on on um, "Dart to the Heart," I think, the, my album "Dart to the Heart." But that it was a surprise to have somebody record that song because it was not one that got a lot of attention. And he did a lovely job of it. But it, it, you know, I don't know that that's more lovely than any of the other ones he did. I wonder if you all will ever do a duet one day. You know, I'd be open to it. I, I mean, I, in a limited way, I've I have on people's records now and then, but but um, it was suggested. I, I Ani DeFranco and I did a, a, a couple of songs together in the in P, the Pete Seeger 90th birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden in New York a few years ago, and I, I thought it was fantastic. I, I mean, I have a great admiration for her anyway and uh, as a person and an artist and so it was really fun to be playing with her and I thought that our guitar parts meshed very well and the kind of energy was really compatible but and somebody suggested we should do something together but I you know that it never went anywhere so that's about as close as I've come to that sort of serious duetting but but I've had some Great people. Ron Sexsmith sang on on a a song a few albums back, and that 
it wasn't necessarily planned that it should be a duet, but the effect of hearing our two voices together came out that way. It sounds like a duet. It sounds like like we're both singing the song and not just him singing back up vocals. And it, and I was happy about that. So, you know, I mean, these things happen once in a while. It's just it's a matter of you know the the flow of the universe. <laughs> I'd say when you get people together in the right place at the right time with the right opportunity, things happen. Do you read reviews that critics write? Not very much. I get curious. To me, it always feels like a mistake. Whenever there's something new out, I get curious to see what people are saying about it, and then I, I look at those things, and sometimes I'm pleased by the fact that they liked it or whatever, but at other times I'm kind of horrified at the at the take on the songs. It's like, what? I didn't... I, that's not what I thought I was saying. So I, it's better if I don't go there. If it's better... Because then i got to go out and do shows, and every time that song comes up, I'm thinking about what somebody said about it instead of the song. So I prefer to kind of stay away from the, the opinions until until it kind of has all blown over, and then it's nice to kind of look and see what, what the consensus was. And, uh, you know, once in a while something comes along i mean i i just see something that that's not the result of me having gone looking for it but it's good to have a perspective i, I wouldn't want to not i wouldn't want to say i've never read reviews uh, because sometimes it's a healthy thing but uh but other times i just get like i said kind of obsessed with some turn of phrase that the that the reviewer applied to a song and then like every time i sing the song that turn of phrase comes up and whether it's positive or not Instead of thinking about the, you know, instead of being in the song, I'm, I'm I'm standing back looking at somebody's opinion of it, and that that's not a good thing. I'm sure that my pronunciation is going to be bad here, but I wanted to ask about another song from Bone on Bone. I think the translation is My Way. Mon Chemin? Mon Chemin, yeah, it's pretty good. You, you got close. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, my, my, my road, my path. Yeah, that's basically what it means. What inspired that one? A poem by, uh, or a, a phrase, that phrase, actually, Mon Chemin. Qui sait où serait Mon Chemin? And that translates as, who, who knows where my road would be or where my path would be? And that line was in a poem by a, a French poet from the early part of the 20th century named uh, Guillaume Apollinaire. And he uh, he was one of the kind of precursors of, this all that flowering of craziness that happened in the in the 20s and 30s with cubism and and abstract art and all of those data all that stuff kind of grew out of a movement that he was part of that maybe didn't recognize itself as a movement until it became those other things but he was very influential and and a and a great poet he died as a result of wounds he received in the first world war but uh and this particular poem was in a book a collection of poems that he wrote about his war experiences, and they're they're kind of surreal. They're kind of they're they're not story poems at all. But this line jumped out at me, and I thought I could make a song out of that, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned earlier, this has been your first album in in quite a few years, and you put a lot of effort and time into writing your memoir, Rumors of Glory. What did it feel like to tell your life story 
And what did you learn about yourself from that experience? I don't know what I learned about myself. It, it felt, by turns, gratifying and a big nuisance to be telling my story in a book. It was hard work. It's hard work writing a book. <laughs> a song doesn't take very long. Even, you know, even a song that you have to keep going back to and, and refining or adding to or whatever is still a short-term phenomenon. But writing a book, you have to maintain focus for a long, long time. And, and uh, I mean, it took three years to write that thing. The first bit was easy. Writing about childhood, about very distant memories, was easy because they're, the memories are concise, because there's, they're, not, they're not surrounded by a complicated context. It's, it's kind of graphic. But when you get, as I got into sort of adulthood and and you know, into more complex situations and also into situations where I remember more about them. So the memories are cluttered up with all kinds of other memories. And then it became very hard to write. And I got stuck on the fact that I might be saying things and mentioning people's names who who wouldn't be happy to have their names mentioned in the, in, in whatever context it was. That, you know, you you got to be careful in some of these some of the witnesses are still alive, <laughs> so <laughs> you, you don't want to be compromising people. And I got I got kind of bogged down in all of that for a while. But at that point, I enlisted a co-writer by the name of Greg King, a friend of mine who's a journalist who was in Northern California. He had not written a book before, but but I know knew that he was a good writer, and he brought. I think his journalistic background allowed him to sort of establish a kind of frame in his mind for how the book could take shape and and that and that got it moving forward so it really I'd, i had written about 100 pages and then the two of us wrote the rest so what did i learn about myself in that process i learned that i don't have the patience <laughs> to, to write that kind of work <laughs> really i mean i did it but and i and i can't say i wouldn't do it again or wouldn't try it again but but um, it's it's not really it didn't feel natural to me to be to be stuck on the same project for such a long long time. But it was fun at the same time. It was it was it put the songs that I what I would say instead of you know what I learned about myself. I think the songs that that are that that are described in the book or that are that are referenced in the book uh, that are that form a kind of framework to most of what story there is there, based on the idea that uh, the idea that was presented to me by Harper Collins, the publisher, that that I should write a spiritual memoir. So I asked them what they meant by spiritual memoir, and they had no answer for it. But they figured I was going to come up with this, and so you know, so I looked at how we, you know, what am I going to say in this book? Well, I can, you can tell the story of someone's life from many different perspectives, but. In this case, the mandate was to do a spiritual memoir. So that, so spirituality is going to be the central backbone of the thing. And, and that made the choice of songs to, that created the framework very specific. It's like, you know, I didn't include a lot of songs. I mean, there was, it was kind of understood that you have to include songs that were very popular. So if I had a rocket launcher's in there, wondering where the lions are, is in there, etc. And but they have a place in the, in in what I had to say too. It's not 
gratuitous that they're there, but the songs that sort of are more important to the structure of the book are not those. They're, they're songs like All the Diamonds in the World that I mentioned earlier, or songs like, I don't know, I can't even think now. Let's just say there's there's a lot of songs that I've written over the years that do deal with spirituality, and so those songs became the framework. And it was interesting to put them all together, and this is, I suppose, more a product of, of assembling the box set that we did to go with the book, which includes basically all the songs that are mentioned in the book. Hearing the songs put together in in that form, in the order they appear in the book, is sort of different from just pulling out the old albums and putting them on. So it puts the songs in a in a different perspective to see them back to back or to hear them back to back in the way that they appear in the book, and so that was instructive. And I, you know, what was it instructive of? I'm not really sure. It just felt interesting to hear them from a different angle. You know, and I suppose in some ways I was reminded of certain songs that I'd forgotten about too in that process because there's more songs in in my catalog, so-called, than I can remember. At any one time, I can come up with 50 or 60 that I can actually perform at any one moment, but the rest are just sitting there kind of in limbo. And so going back over the the old ground and rediscovering some of those songs was also kind of fun. Songs like uh, The Gift, which was a song people didn't really pay very much attention to in the 80s, but I always liked and then had forgotten about. So, I mean, there was there was a process there that... that uh, was useful. I've done enough self-examination in my life that that writing the book may have kind of enhanced that, but it didn't really provide me with new information about myself, I don't think. What would you say is the best thing about being Bruce Coburn? Not being dead. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) That's actually a very profound answer when I think about it. Well, my last question, through this self-examination and through your writing, how would you define who you are? Who is Bruce Coburn? Oh, boy. I don't know if if I can come up with anything. I certainly can't come up with a soundbite for that. (laughs) Not that I'm very good at that anyway, but who is Bruce Coburn? An old guy who's life has paralleled the second half of the 20th. Well, not paralleled. It has been part of the uh, second half of the 20th century. We're now into the 21st, and it isn't over yet. But I feel like when people started talking about peak oil, I started thinking, well, me and oil are going to peak about the same time. And you know, I was born in 1945 at the end of the Second World War. It was, um, it was kind of right in there at the beginning of the, the boomer wave. And we had a certain kind of life that that really, that a certain kind of situation that I grew up with here in North America. And if you're looking at the rest of the world, this may not apply so well. But, but in North America, we had a pretty good life. And in, thanks to the efforts of the generation that preceded us, who had lived through the Depression and the war, and in some cases, a couple of world wars, too, Having been brought up by those people, uh, and uh, who were committed to kind of not having to live through that stuff again, 
in, in their various ways. They were hopeful about never having to live through that stuff again, and, and we benefited greatly from that. We, I did, certainly. Materially, spiritually, morally, all that. And it was a, it was a bit of a golden age, which I think is gone. I think the, I think that golden age is, well, I don't know if it's completely gone, but it's certainly, it's certainly getting teetery. That I think it's harder for people to feel like they kind of have a handle on what's, what life is now. I say that in, you know, as an, as a bit of an outsider because I'm the age I am. So I don't know what it feels like to be a 20 something now. It's, it's certainly a different world than, than the one I grew up with. So, so who am I in that? Well, I'm a product of, of that. I'm a product of, of parents who went through the stuff they went through and didn't want to see it again and taught me a moral code and a, and an ethical worldview and a, and gave me material comfort sufficient to make me not feel like I had to scuffle for things. We weren't indulged. Our family always had enough money. My dad was a doctor. He did well. But, but we were not overindulged. We just always had enough of everything. And so when you grow up like that, you, you know, I mean, money never mattered very much to me because I, it was never really without it. If you, when you meet poor people, they think about money all the time because they don't have it, and they want it. And when they do get it, they think about it then too, because they know what it is to be without. And for me, it, it never really mattered. So I could be the bohemian artist without feeling like I was taking big risks. Because who cares? You know, there'll always be some food somewhere. I, you know, I, I think that was a great blessing. Actually, I don't. I, I, I've also been blessed with opportunities to get a sense of of what it is to not have those things because I've traveled in a lot of places where people have nothing and I've I've been close enough to those people to get a feel for how their lives are but and I think that's a blessing too but it's it's how I see myself is is the result of all these things and and beyond that I'm just I trying to write songs well Mr. Coburn it's been a great pleasure to have this interview Thank you. I've really it's been enjoyed fun it. Fun to talk to you, and good. Thanks very much. I, and thanks for having me on, and I enjoy talking to you too. All right, my pleasure. I'll try to. I'm going to try to see that show that you're doing in Atlanta this spring. Oh yeah, solo show. That'll be cool. nice. Yeah, maybe I'll see you in Atlanta. Try and say hi if you're there. I will absolutely. Thanks so much to Bernie Finkelstein, the manager of Bruce Coburn, for making this interview possible. And, of course, thanks to Bruce Coburn for joining us. I get a chance to listen to a lot of music, and I've really been enjoying Bone on Bone, Bruce Coburn's 33rd album, and that's out on True North Records. Got a review on iTunes from Famous Keith. The review title, Good Stuff. He says, Interesting discussions and great guests. Looking forward to future interviews. Thank you, Famous Keith. If you'd like to have your review read, you can go on iTunes or Stitcher and give us a rating. So far, we have 5 out of 5 on all of our ratings there on iTunes. And if you do like the podcast, consider giving us a review and a rating. It helps other people find the show and allows me to continue to do this. If you haven't subscribed, please feel free to do so. Of course, it's 100% free. That's all for now. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. 
Recorded, engineered, and mixed by Henry Jordan of Jordan Digital Studios. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>